All right, welcome to another episode of the Speech Entropy Podcast today with Michael Snyder, Chair of the Department of Genetics and Director of the Center for Genomics and Personalized Medicine at Stanford University. Hi, Michael, how are you doing? Doing great, great to see you. Yes, so I'm very happy that we're gonna do this today. Um, I'm very excited about this. A lot of interesting things that you are involved in, a lot of interesting work that you guys are doing. Um, but first and foremost, we always start the podcast the same way. So obviously to kind of get a little bit, um, you know, a, a background picture of who we are talking to, who the guest is. So, uh, you know, just kind of in a storytelling way and in, in, in the different types of stages in your professional life, where are you coming from? What has, what you know, kind of shaped you and what is it that you're doing today? Oh, well, let's see, if you go way back, I grew up in rural America. It's dairy farm country in Pennsylvania, <laughs> if you want to go back that far. I probably got turned on, I got interested in chemistry, which is a little unusual in dairy farm country in Pennsylvania. But um, uh, I won a science fellowship to go to University of Rochester, which is where I got my undergraduate degree in both chemistry. And then I got very interested in biology. So I got, did a degree both in chemistry and biology, went to Caltech, when we're common at DNA. Cloning genes was, it was a new thing. And I got very excited about that. And I saw the power of technology and that got me I think very, very jazzed. Uh, and then I did my postdoc at Stanford with a, a brilliant guy named Ron Davis, who was also very technology oriented. And then I went to Yale University is where I got my faculty position. I was there for 23 years. And I, I think what, uh, and then moved to Stanford after that. And I, I think what our, we're most known for is people used to study genes one at a time and, and really just focus on the gene. And I think our, our big shtick, which I think applies to what we're doing now, is to be able to study all the genes at once. We would look at the whole thing in a systems level. So instead of like, if you have a headache, people just trying to look at maybe, you know, one aspect of what's causing that, we would try and look at the whole body would be our way. That's the analogy I'll use, or not perhaps a better analogy is a jigsaw puzzle, you know? Instead of just trying to look at one little segment of that puzzle, we try and see the whole puzzle. And so our, our work that we started, yeah, mostly with the biology side was to actually start looking at biological problems with, as, at a systems level with all the different components at once. And then when I moved to Stanford, which is, a, you know, the summer, it'll be 12 years, we took that same concept and applied it to medicine. I think medicine is very, very broken. Uh, people study things in silos. Uh, it's very focused on treating you when you're ill. Uh, it's, it's a huge problem and, and it's broken at so many different levels. I'm sure most people listening have had at least one bad experience with their with the medical system that didn't serve them well. And, and the biggest problem I have is it doesn't work. It doesn't try to keep people healthy. It tries to fix you when you're broken and it treats everybody at a population level. So our, I guess if I had one more comment on this, it's that our, our, what we try to do is I wanna transform medicine. I want to treat people at an individual level, but a population scale. So I wanna treat everybody at an individual level with advanced technologies. And I think the, the timing is just really, really good for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's kind of the holy grail, right? So to, to get personalized treatment on a, on a scale, you, you, you said it perfectly. Um, so obviously there's a lot you know, going on and, and technology is moving very quickly and you know, computational, computational power and, and, and storage and more data obviously is, 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 is only uh, making this faster. 
So um, how, how would you then describe kind of the status quo? So before we go a little bit more deeper into, let's say the, you know, maybe some of the good examples that you, that you guys have within your labs, so a little bit more detail into the work, how would you describe the status quo? So, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of people have heard that and, you know, a lot of, you know, there's a billion star startups out there, you know, uh, on, on different types of things, on, on, on genomics, on, 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 on the microbiome, on, on, on everything, right? On nutrition. I mean, how many nutrition things are there going on, right? So, but, you know, how would you describe the status quo when we are talking about, you know, this really this personalized aspect of, of you know, of, of maybe not even treating a person, but maybe like just preventing even disease, you know, not, not even yeah. getting to the point of fixing someone. Yeah, no, the status quo is the following. The doctor's office today looks exactly like the doctor's office of 40 years ago. They still use stethoscopes. They still use, in fact, they still try to tell you you're getting sick using a thermometer, which is, you know, a 300-year-old instrument. We're in the middle of a 21st century pandemic. And how are they trying to tell if you're getting sick with a thermometer? And show me a single person who's been walked away from a door when they shine an infrared thermometer on you. I can't think of a single example. And the reason is when you walk up, first of all, it's cold outside. It gives the wrong reading anyway. It reads way too low. And, and if you're warm, people just say, well, it's because I ran to the door and I was overheated. And so, okay, you can go in anyway. So we're, <laughs> we're trying to use technologies that don't work even, even in the midst of the pandemic. That's one example, and, and as a you know, friend, that's one problem. Uh, we just use old technologies. It, you know, the, there's another example that you know who the largest uh, purchasers of fax machines is. It's a medical system by a lot. I don't think my kids even know what a fax machine is. <laughs> so they're just they're just embedded in old technology. It's a very conservative profession, and and understandably so. It's this do no harm. I think what they don't realize is that doing nothing is harmful too. So I think the, the system needs to be cutting edge. It needs to be focused on health. Uh, the whole payment structure is wrong. We can get into that later. Um, you know, nobody pays you to keep you healthy. Most physicians, most hospitals, the head of the hospital said, Mike, I don't get paid unless somebody walks in the door and they're not gonna walk in the door unless they're ill. So it's, it's just the, the financial system's not incentivized. Anyway, what we're trying to do as a first step in this is bring advanced technologies into play. So we can now sequence people's DNA. We can do deep profiling on people. And this is again, what I think we've been trying to implement two aspects, bring big data, bring these advanced technologies and see if they can be used for helping people in their health and, and wearables, I'm sure we'll talk about it. So another aspect. So it's a combination of genomics and these deep biochemical profiling called other omics, if you will, proteomics, transcriptomics, metabolomics, following as many molecules as possible. And then the other aspect of it is following people longitudinally. Uh, so in today's world, if you go in and they make a bunch of measurements on you, they'll say, all right, I see that you're in either normal range values or not. And then they make a decision, but your trajectory, you may still be in normal range, but you may be heading towards a very abnormal situation. Uh, and nobody looks back at the past data. Longitudinal data, we think is super powerful. So that's what we're trying to do. Uh, and that's what we've been doing first as a research study. And then we spun off some companies to try as a way to scale this. And so um, happy to talk more about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, I've, um, I've, I've really spent a lot of time um, kind of looking into the into the intersection of, you know, really um, 
data science, machine learning, deep learning, you know, uh, being applied at uh, health related topics and also a lot into the nutrition space now in the, in the past. And um, so, a lot, you know, there's, there's two sides of things, right? So there's a lot of promise, especially when it comes to data where a lot of things and you know you 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 kind of like stroll through the through the research papers you know etc and then and a lot of things where, where, where it's always the same about you know we have a lot of data now you know from from different sources such as you know variables etc 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 for me you know that is and, and and that has challenges as well because you know at what have we seen so far you know obviously we have seen consumer products such as the apple watch or fitbit or whatever but those are it, right? And they only have this and that many variables. And then obviously there's challenges in regards to how do you capture all that data also, especially when it comes to really a recommendation that is health related. And, you know, think about a, think if you make a recommendation and the data stream is, let's say, you know, cutting off because of whatever reason, right? Then you make a false prediction or you don't capture the data that you need at a certain time. So it is, it's, I, I don't need to tell you that, right? But there's a lot of limitations, obviously. And the question is, what is kind of the next stage there, right? So, because that is only one part. There's only this and that many digital biomarkers that you can collect so far. Same as, you know, if, if you talk about digital phenotyping, right? Like how much, what is, how big is the potential actually compared to, and, and that's a scalability factor because I always think it this way. The advantage is pretty clear, right? Because it's not a clinical, it's not a clinical setting. Because clinical, clinical setting, capturing data in a clinical setting is always more expensive, right? And your data sets are only limited. And so I, I'm throwing all these things at you. Yeah. I'm throwing all these things exactly. at you. <laughs> you know, let me unpack a little bit of that. <laughs> There's a ton you threw in those comments. All right, so where to start? Uh, you know, first of all, these are relatively new technologies. When we got involved in wearables, probably about eight years ago, the Apple Watch didn't exist. People, the Fitbit exists. People are using them as fitness trackers. They would wear them for three months, understand their patterns, throw them in a drawer because they're done. Uh, our claim to fame on that side is that we realize these are pretty powerful physiological monitors because they're measuring you 24-7, 365 days a year. So they can really follow your physiology all the time. Now we were already doing biochemical measurements, but when we saw these wearables as, as you know, potential health devices, it was pretty transformative. Uh, so we started putting these on people and we realized that they can be health monitors. So first of all, the system won't accept it again because it's conservative. Uh, it won't accept it initially, but it, it's starting to now because the system's really expensive. Uh, if you don't use alternative technology, especially now in the pandemic, telemedicine is becoming a little more acceptable too. But uh, you, you do have to show utility and that's when, so it starts out as a research study and that's what our work's all about. We are trying to use these devices in all kinds of ways. Uh, step one was when we discovered, when we put these on people, one of the first things we discovered is we could detect infectious disease with a smartwatch and, and a, we had a pulse ox, uh, we're using time too. And, and the story behind that, which is kind of interesting from a personal standpoint was, you know, I figured I detected my Lyme disease with the smartwatch and pulse ox. Uh, and so the story there was I was helping my brother put up fences in rural Massachusetts, two weeks later flying to Norway. And, and your listeners may or may not know that uh, your, your blood oxygen drops on airline flights. Most people don't know that, but it does. Uh, it's because they they decrease the pressure in the cabin and so your blood oxygen drops you get tired because of that uh, that's something we showed in the study but what what i noticed on this one flight is it dropped abnormally low it's two weeks after i'd been 
putting up these fences in rural Massachusetts where most ticks are filled with lime. So 55% have lime. And, uh, and I was on the flight and it dropped that normally low. It wasn't just a little low, went way low. And it never came back to normal. And I saw my heart rate was up for my smartwatch. Uh, and then it was before I had symptoms. And then later I got symptoms. So I went to a physician there I, 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 and I warned the doctor that it might be lying because of the timing. He did in fact, you know, took blood tests, said, yep, you've got a bacterial infection. He recommended penicillin and I said, no, no, I need doxycycline. That's what you do for Lyme. It was a little tense because doctors don't like to be told by their patients what to take, uh, but he did give in and, uh, and I took it, cleared up right away and you take it two weeks. When I got back, I got tested and I was Lyme positive and it's perfectly controlled. You can tell I experiment on myself a lot. In fact, I'm wearing four smartwatches right now. But uh, anyway, the, the, I'd given uh, samples three days before I'd left on this trip to Norway and um, that's where it was. And, and it, sure enough, it, it turns out it was negative. So I'd seroconverted during that time. But the point of the whole story was I actually was able to detect my Lyme disease when I first got it with a simple smartwatch. And I, I had a pulse ox as well. So, so we wrote algorithms then to be able to do this uh, um, and look for when you first get ill. And I had two years of data at the time. What we noticed is that every single time I was ill, and this is a big deal, one of them I was asymptomatic, but actually I knew I was ill because there's a marker, it's called CRP that was elevated, uh, that I've been measuring. So four times I was ill during these two, two, um, two years. And every single time I was ill, my heart rate, and it turns out my skin temperature both went up. Uh, which I could see with the smartwatch. It was all retrospective. So we wrote these algorithms that tell uh, when you're getting ill because your heart, your resting heart rate jumps up in advance of symptoms and it works. And it worked on every single time I was ill. I, uh, it doesn't work for skin temperature, by the way, because not everyone holds their, their watch tight on their skin, but it works really well for resting heart rate. Every single time I was ill, I had this jump up in heart rate in advance of symptoms and it worked on me, it worked on three other people, one of whom got sick twice. So we could show that this works. A smartwatch can tell when you're getting ill before you know it in most cases. So we've now been, we've been, we published that four years ago. We've, we've ramped this up uh, when the pandemic came. We were, we were improving it, but obviously we scaled it very, very quickly when the pandemic came. COVID-19 and what we did was first we showed that it works on COVID and there we can show it actually jumps up on a median average of four days prior to symptoms. You will see this jump up in heart rate from a smartwatch. It's pretty amazing. And it's seven days before diagnosis. So four days before you get ill on average, some people it's as much as uh, 10 days even. It's pretty incredible. They're running around and, and presumably then when that you know, they're running around before they had the symptoms spreading this thing without knowing it. Uh, so anyway, we first showed it worked. We had 32 people worked in 80% of the cases. And then uh, we, we've continued to improve our algorithms. We, we then set up an alerting system and that's what we just rolled out now. So if you're listening, we'd love you to join our study, stanford.innovations.edu slash wearables, stanford.innovations.edu in, uh, sorry, innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables. Love to have you join. Uh, anyway, um, so it, it alerts people. So we first showed it retrospectively that we have this alarming system. What it's doing, and this is the key to health, it follows your healthy baseline. And when you start getting an elevation, it measures, measures you on an hour by hour basis. 
when you start getting uh, something jumping up abnormally for multiple hours, usually about six hours, it'll flag it. And it's we, we've set the alarm in a way it goes off about every two months, just because so we, we're looking for maximum sensitivity, but not don't want to alarm you every day. So uh, we've set it away, it goes off at roughly, that's the, the non-COVID rate every two months. But when you get one of these events and when COVID then triggers it, it will jump up and we'll send you a red alert. And we want you to tell us what you're doing. Uh, uh, it's not just COVID, other infectious diseases will trigger this. And it turns out other things too. If you really, if you drink a lot and really tie one on, you're hungover the next day, you'll set off an alarm. It's, uh, so other things can cause an increase in heart rate. So you do have to contextualize it and we'd love you to tell us uh, in, as you ping back and tell us what's going on. Um, but anyway, I know as we pull in more data types, right now we're limited in the amount of data we can get from companies. But as we pull in more data, I know we can get this more and more accurate. Uh, I'm pretty confident. Now, I don't know if we'll ever be able to tell the difference between a COVID infection and another kind of viral infection, the respiratory virus, but uh, we're not sure. We'll just have to see. Uh, but just knowing that you're getting ill, we think is a big deal, especially in a pandemic. But even in, in normal times to see if somebody's getting ill, we think is a very useful thing. You know, if you're a parent, you kind of want to know if your kid's getting ill, so you don't tell, send them to school. And likewise, if you have an elderly parent, perhaps you don't, you know, you kind of like to keep track of them without spying on them. But maybe, you know, if you don't hear from them in a few days, you can just check their monitor, say, yep, your heart rate's fine, everything's good. So, so I think these are gonna be especially useful for caregivers as well. Um, so anyway, this is where I, I see the world as all having these health devices um, um, and uh, an analogy, if you, I can take one more moment here there, Jonathan, what, an analogy I like to use is, is a car. Uh, your car has some sensors on it. A, a fancy car probably have about 400. And all that information relays into your dashboard. And you can't imagine driving around the car without a dashboard. You know, it tells you your gas, tells you when the engine light goes on, tells you when you're speeding. It's following what, you know, what your car is doing. And I would argue that people are more important than cars and we don't tend not to be wearing any sensors, which is kind of crazy. I think we should, smart watches, if, they, if you will, or smart rings, they are a sensor and they can alert you to things that are happening uh, as well. And it goes beyond infectious disease. We can show that we get some signals for uh, how much hemoglobin you have, which could be a sign of anemia if it drops. Uh, so there's other kinds of things you can measure. This is just the beginning. Yeah, do you, so that, that will be actually my next question, right? So, uh, or uh, my, my basically the question that I have been asking myself is, so uh, obviously that is, you know, the, the, the scale that we have there, which is the crucial factor, right? Um, I always, I mean, we're going to go into the, the clinical set, setting afterwards, but I mean, so in, in that regard, obviously scale is the, is, is the, the, the powerful thing about it, right? That you have through these consumer products, basically, you know, the, the scale of, of really collecting that much, that much information. The question, however, is, you know, what, what is going to be the next step with that? Because obviously, you know, that is not everything I've, I've read. I've read uh, uh, some interesting papers in regards to the um, um, digital biomarkers, uh, non-invasive digital biomarkers, or um, where you already have sensors which are that small, you know, um, or not, not sensors, sorry, but like needles, which are on a micro level, you know, measuring things, which are also going to be super interesting. But how, how do you see kind of this, this space or the, you know, maybe 
also the challenge and and your opinion in regards to where it's going to move in regard uh, in regards to that yeah well so great question so one thing that's already here we didn't talk about are these continuous glucose monitors they they're exactly what you say they poke in you uh, they're over the counter in europe meaning anybody can buy one here you need a physician to order them but they will become over the counter uh, and so they're incredibly powerful. So you may know 9% of the U.S. is, is diabetic and 33% are pre-diabetic. And 70% of those pre-diabetic folks are going to become diabetic. So we're in the midst of an endemic that's just, just as bad as COVID and people don't, it's just kind of sneaking up on us. Uh, and, and as you know, a lot of it's because the, the, we eat poorly, comes back to this nutrition thing, we can get into that. But also, you know, our population's pretty overweight and in many cases, downright obese. So we were in a problem case where people are running out of control. And these technologies, this continuous glucose monitoring turns out to be very powerful. It can measure, it turns out we all react differently to food. And these, these devices can tell you that when you eat something, you will spike your glucose if you eat the wrong food. And that's very person specific. So what spikes me may not spike you, may not spike another person. Some people spike the pasta, others to bread, others to, well, nearly everybody spikes the cornflakes and milk. That stuff's like poison. So if you don't remember anything from this podcast, remember cornflakes and milk is probably as bad as alcohol. <laughs> it's really, it spikes 80% of people. Some people are able to control it, I suppose. Anyway, the, the point is that different foods spike different people and we can measure that with these devices and they sit on you for two weeks, totally conflicted, but I have a company called January that's actually, um, that's, that has a program that uses these continuous glucose monitors and it teaches you, uh, you know, first of all, what food spike you. It's very eye-opening, you'd be surprised. Everything makes sense in hindsight, but it, you know, a good example for me was poured, pulled pork. I had no idea that would spike, spikes my glucose totally out of control. Now I'm type two diabetic. So the, so any, a lot of stuff can spike me, but pulled pork sent me out. So what's going on here? And somebody said, well, of course, pulled pork has sugar in it. It's like, I had no idea, but you know, lots of other people did. <laughs> and I ran into someone who said, you know, I, he, he wore one of these and he was, um, uh, he was doing salmon salads. We said, well, this is incredible. This is like the best thing you do for lunch. But it turns out, uh, but he then had, was wearing a monitor and, the, and his glucose spiked way out of control. And it turns out he puts balsam vinegar on top of his salad and that has sugar in it. And so now he knows to leave, the, you know, leave that off and eat his salad on lettuce and he's fine. So these devices are really, really powerful for teaching you what you're, what may react, you know, you what you may react with poorly, and therefore, you know, trying to avoid those things. And there's plenty of, you know, good stuff you can eat that won't spike your glucose. So I think we'll get into that with more things. I think something that'll come along in the future will be cortisol, which is a stress marker. So I think the idea that you're getting stressed, there are other kinds of ways to figure that out too. It's like you can actually get it by how people interface with their electronics. And the language they use tells you what their mindset is, believe it or not, whether they're getting depressed. There's companies out building around this kind of stuff. So I think you can collect this information, feed it back to people. And the key is to feed it back to them in a very useful and, and way in which they can use the data. So one reason it hasn't entered, I would argue, the medical system now is because it's too early and, and people want to see trials the proper trials that show, yes, you get this information, it does give you a good diagnosis, 
and then um, there is a treatment that can go with that. So that's what the medical system will want to see. And I think th that will happen, just takes time. In the meantime, though, uh, you know, people are clamoring for this uh, information. There are 50 million smartwatch users out there right now uh, in the US of so 20% of the population. 50 million, that's a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, they can all have access to some health information. So it's gonna happen whether the medical system you know, adopts it or not. I think this is the, you know, the horses are out of the gate. This is already happening. And I think it'll drive, uh, it, it'll drive a lot of rigor. It'll be a good thing. Um, one challenge you brought up is, you know, this is all happening, how's work at scale. Well, one is getting the information back. You don't want people running around with four smartwatches and other CGMs and things like me. So you got to pull all the data into common app. And uh, that's something we've been working on a lot. So we built a dashboard that can pull in all your wearable data, your clinical data, even your microbiome data. All these data types we can pull into one app, display it at whatever time scale you have. And the other thing we spent a huge amount of time on is trying to do this at scale. So like in our COVID study, we're trying to measure, we literally want to measure tens of millions of people where we're following them in real time, following the resting heart rate, for example, or other things. And then, and then if we see this deviation, you know, ping them back, look, something's up, your heart rate's up. And imagine doing that for tens of millions of people at scale, there's a lot of challenges there. And I think we've solved them. We're, we're doing cloud computing across essentially the, the planet, pulling in data, trying to keep things uh, not too computationally intensive that'll break the bank, but enough that we can tell you when we think you're, you're get, you're have a jump up in resting heart rate and that is associated with an infection. So it might you know tell you to go see a doctor or just at least self-isolate, uh, that kind of stuff. So uh, we're not there yet with that part. So we, we need IRB approval to be able to, that's institutional approval to be able to give advice. We don't do that, but we do alarm people about when their heart rate jumps up. So, so I think we can get there. And I'll be honest, my goal is to put a device on everyone in the planet. 60% uh, of the world is wearing a, or sorry, 6% of the world has a smartphone. And if you pair that with an inexpensive smartwatch, you've got a health tracker for a lot of the world, yeah. many of which are in very, very remote parts. They don't have access to good healthcare. So you've gotten them something which is better than nothing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you, you, mentioned, you mentioned some interesting thing, especially when it comes to, um, let's say, you know, bringing all, all different types of data together, right? And, and one of the things that I've, been, that I've been thinking about is that, you know, human health is is you know utterly complex and 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 you know there's so many variables that come into place and the thing that you see right now is you know if you look if you're kind of you know coming from a technology transfer perspective saying okay you know uh, how do you get things into society you know and you look at all the different startups that you have right each one of them is tackling one let's say problem right so they're, they're coming from one angle right you have like a genomics startups or uh, or a nutri like a, um, a microbiome uh, startup or whatever that is right and so and then maybe specifically for for let's say uh, nephrology for example right so for a specific uh, you know part of part of the human or like a specific problem and the, the pro you know the, the major problem that you have with that is if you say okay human health is very complex and you know obviously with a smartwatch you can already measure a lot of things 
So now what I'm trying to do is I, tr I try to make this transition of the things that you cannot measure non-invasively, you know, which, which you need to, which, which can only be measured in a clinical setting and where, you know, the, the difficulty of, of uh, collecting larger amounts of data is, is, is uh, you know, obviously in the fact that you need to get these people in a, in a clinical setting and, a, and in a lab setting, and these things are obviously more expensive. So um, how do you see developments in that regard when it comes to, when it comes to that? Because obviously, um, I mean, you, you yourself in, in, in genomics, you know, there was a lot of, you know, governmental support, obviously, you know, in the US, but also with the UK, you know, big data sets have been created. Um, but there's also other things, right? Potomics, all the different types of omics that you have, right? And, and those, okay. I, I, was, I was so fascinated by the, by the microbiome, you know, a, a couple of months ago, where there's, it is insane, you know, the, 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 the complexity of, of, of the human body is, is, is really, it's, it's incredible. So it I, is incredible. Yeah. So a couple comments there. I think first of all, a, a lot of what we're doing is research. We're trying to dig as deeply as possible because we don't know which molecules will be most informative if you ultimately want to apply it to, you know, try to apply it to monitoring and helping people with their healthcare. So these deep dives we do in the lab, they're very academic. Uh, and they help us say, oh, these measurements are really great. Like the wearables, when we started, nobody knew they would be that great. Nobody knew you could tell infectious disease ahead of symptom with a smartwatch. So by doing, by testing these things, we discover things and then we figure out what works. We try and perfect them to some extent. And then to be honest, what we do next is then we spin off companies because academics, they're terrible. Uh, um, they're good at discovery. They're good at proof of principle. They're terrible at scaling. They think they're good at it, but they're not. Uh, that's what companies do well. They, they take something. And so I mentioned January, which does a continuous glucose monitoring and the, it's, it's broadly in the, in the metabolic health space. But this other company we have called QBio that actually does a deep medical profile with whole body MRI. So it does require a visit. Uh, but it does bring in lots of different data types. It's been incredibly valuable, just like our, this profiling study we did. We had 109 people in, in just over three years. We had 49 people who learned something really important about their self, like caught some of the early lymphoma, some pre-cancers, two people with serious heart issues, all caught before symptoms because we were doing this deep data. It was a pretty powerful study. Uh, and now with the, this QBio company, same things happened. Just in the first 100 plus people, we have more than that now, that they caught some of the early pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, even a heart issue. So same thing. Now that company, it's, it doesn't go as deep. What it's doing is it's still a deep data, but it's more medically focused, trying to bring information that is actionable. And so that's the difference. So when you spin off a company, it has to be a lot more streamlined because people pay for it. They're, they're not gonna pay for everything. And we try and keep it as relevant as possible. But it is meant to do a deep data dive on people. And importantly, to some of the points you've raised, it displays the information back to people in a fashion they can use. In fact, if you've ever, you've never seen like your electronic health record, perhaps, it's a mess. It's totally unusable. Uh, and when physicians have looked at what QBio has done for their report, they're saying, this is amazing. Why don't we have this? in you know the medical system and they don't it's just crazy that yeah it's not put back in a useful fashion which you have to do if you're collecting a lot of data on people you just have to bring it back in a fashion 
that people can can understand. And for QBio, they it's not only for the person, but they can share it with their physician if they want and, and interpret it too. And the physicians love it. They said, well, this is pretty cool. So anyway, um, so that's a few comments there. Where is it going to go in the future? Yes, I do think some equipment that's very specialized, like MRI, those are big machines. They're not going to be in your house. You will have to go. But uh, ultimately, I would like to see them placed in, to be honest, a CVS. Every time you go to a drugstore, to be able to you know, uh, get a health checkup would be pretty cool. But that'll be in the future somehow. Uh, but in the meantime, I think a lot of biochemical assays can be done remotely. That is to say, they're done now in a, in a clinician's office, which, by the way, is the worst place to get a lot of measurements, like heart rate, because people's heart rate's always up in the doctor's office, uh, unless you're like me, who's always there. But my heart rate's all over the place. It depends whether I biked or drove or whatever. Uh, and that's true of other people as well. So, so a lot of these measurements in a doctor's office aren't even very useful. But what I think is going to happen in the future is that we will be able to get blood samples and things uh, through what we call microsampling, small samples. And so our lab's working a lot of that on the research side. I know other groups are too, where you give small blood samples or urine samples that you then mail in. And, and that can become the future. So I see in wearables and, and later implantables, where you put something under your skin to make measurements. And then uh, with these micro samplings to get some of your clinical tests, maybe not all that you can do, because some do need to be rapid, but I think some of them could be done at home or it's the original Theranos concept that, that we've been working on too, uh, but one that works, one that's not doesn't have any fraud involved, <laughs> would be the idea that where you can, can do micro sampling and, and, and read out a lot of medically relevant measurements get that and can go right to the physician who physicians worry a lot this is going to replace them but it's not it's only going to augment healthcare uh because they'll get better data that they can uh, that they can use i'll give one more example when wearables first came out and i was showing this to some physicians in fact came up all the time they'd all say oh that's not accurate then i'd have to tell them well it's actually more accurate than what you're measuring at least for heart rate in a doctor's office because um, in a doctor's office, again, your heart rate can be all over the place depending on what you're doing. They only make one measurement. But if you pull somebody's resting heart rate first thing in the morning, it's very constant unless they're ill or very stressed and it'll jump up. So the measurements you can get from these devices can be more accurate than you'll ever get in a physician's office. So we really should be thinking in those terms, I think. Yeah, it is uh, definitely super interesting. So maybe kind of as a last question here for today. Um, so obviously there's a lot of very interesting things going on, right? And uh, you also in your in your regards are seeing a lot of things and there's a uh, 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 multiple topics that you guys are covering in the lab. But let's say now, obviously in, 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 the, in the past year with the pandemic and everything, you know, a lot of, a lot of work has also been done in that regard. And you've, you've already mentioned some of that, but so, and, and I know bringing it or pointing it down to one example is always hard, but I still, I, I, I like to ask that question. So what is something in the, in the in, in, let's say in the recent past that you came across, you know, maybe in a research setting or maybe something that is, let's say, more or less transferred into society through a startup or um, a product or whatever that is, where you say like, okay, that really, you know, that is some really, really interesting thing that is coming there or that, that has been discovered or whatever that is, you know? 
just well like, from yeah i guess from our own data i would argue from our own research i would argue just this concept of big data can be applied i'm i'm now 100 convinced applying this to the healthy population will be very very powerful uh getting people to get deeper measurements while they're healthy so we can see this happen so that's the the q bio concept that's also this january this metabolic concept as well. I think another area that I find very intriguing, we're not quite there yet, but there is going to be uh, aging. I do think we will be in a world where people will be able to, uh, to be honest, control their age better than they're doing now. There's a lot of startup activity in this longevity field. It's very, very interesting. It's very early, uh, but I, I would be awfully surprised, but we can now from our own work and work of others follow how people age and not everybody ages the same. And I think there'll be opportunities to try to control that. So I see that as a big space. I think this nutrition space, which we've kind of touched on, but never really dug in as deep is gonna be huge as well. People respond very, very differently to different diets. It's highly personalized and we don't really understand that. So I think understanding how people's microbiome other uh, types of things, you know, their epigenetics, if you will, their genetics plays into how they handle nutrition so we can optimize diet for people. I mean, you know, there's, there's two number one things people do, diet and exercise that really impact their health. And, and it's true, people, you know, ignore it. Food, food is medicine. It's, you eat a ton of this stuff. And when you think about it, most people in the U.S., unfortunately, do not eat a very healthy diet. I didn't growing up. I might, and I'm type two diabetic. I think possibly as a consequence, I'm genetically predisposed. I'm, we we know that. Um, so it's probably a combination of both. But yeah, so I would argue that that understanding better how nutrition affects people on an individual level is going to be huge. And and there's been some very interesting strides in that direction. So so I think all these are, areas wearables. Uh, yeah, including, including continuous glucose monitoring, yeah, nutrition, all these are going to be exciting areas in the future. Thank you very much, Michael, for being on the show. It was a very good pleasure uh, talking to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been fun.